May 9th, it's the next webinar. Morgan is going to be covering sales-ready messaging to help you build and maintain a huge pipeline. Thank you to our partners for this one, Lead IQ and SalesLoft. Let's make it happen. Good afternoon, everybody. This is John Barrows with Make It Happen Mondays. Hopefully, you all had a fantastic weekend. Um, I did because I was preparing for this podcast, and I am very honored to introduce our guest today, who shouldn't really need an introduction to my audience because I talk about him a lot. Uh, but I'd like to introduce everybody to Chris Voss, the founder of the Black Swan Group and author of one of the best negotiation books on the planet, Never Split the Difference. Chris, how's it going today? Thanks, Jan. It's going really well. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate you taking the time here. And um, one of the things I want to kind of start with was Black Swan, that the whole concept itself. Could you, and how it relates to negotiation, could you educate the audience here on the concept of Black Swan and, and, and kind of white swans versus no, nobody ever thought there was and how it relates to negotiations? Yeah, well, uh, you know, the idea uh, on two levels, uh, little things that make a big difference, the impact of the highly improbable stuff that would change things in ways that no one ever expected you to change. Um, so the negotiation techniques are counterintuitive, r really such as, you know, not even bothering with the word yes. I mean, how do you do that and, and have a massive impact on how effective you are as a negotiator? And then also the idea that, the tiny little pieces of information that'll make all the difference in the world that the other side is holding on to. You could just get it out of them. Gotcha. Um, you know, that that's, so it's on two levels, a dual metaphor, if you will. I like it. And so it, uh, the idea is like, you know, and I think the original thing of black swan was nobody ever, it, everybody always assumed swans were white. Right. And so there was that perception. And then all of a sudden somebody saw a black swan and was like, holy shit, like, What's that all about? And it came out of nowhere and it reshaped people's mindsets. So is it our goal to try to uncover those black swans throughout the negotiations? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and then just to accept that they're there. I mean, yeah. when, we're, when we're training people in negotiation, if, if, you don't, if you can't write down something new that you learned in the interaction that surprised you, you didn't do a good job. Uh, all right, cool. So, so with that, what's, what's the diff, what, what do you see as the major differences between hostage negotiations that, that you've obviously been a part of and business negotiations? What are the, I mean, outside the, <laughs> the potential of death, um, but uh, what, are, what do you see as the big differences between hostage and, and, and business negotiations? Hostage negotiations are generally calmer. No shit. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got to tell you something, you know, um, in hostage negotiation, uh, you know, since we learned, uh, we didn't know it was emotional intelligence, but we learned how to dial into people faster mm -hmm. with some neuroscience tools, emotional intelligence tools. They really tend to be, they, they tend to be calmer. I mean, business people have far more stories of people screaming at them, yelling at them, storming out of the room, trying to destroy negotiations than any of the hostage negotiators I ever worked with did and that's just just crazy if you think about it but if if you, the idea is to to use really tactical emotional intelligence from the beginning then it makes sense that it that ours are calmer and and probably more effective overall and is it because i my my assumption here on on hosses is that they might start really emotional but then i mean they might start really aggressive but then through some tactical stuff you can kind of calm down and come to a, an agreement whereas business do they do they keep the emotions throughout or do they keep the hostility throughout well 
Um, people get mad when they don't when they're not heard. I mean, it it seems like ridiculously obvious, mm-hmm. but very few business people go into a negotiation to hear the other side out because they're so determined to be heard. I got a case I got to make. I got a value proposition I got to give. I got an argument I have to make. I have to explain to them what my position is. And, you know, the, the Stephen Covey advice from, from way back, seek first to understand and be understood. This is a tactical application of that. You know, seek first to demonstrate understanding in order to be understood. I get my point across much quicker. I can get it into your brain if I know that the biggest obstacle to you hearing my case is you have to be heard out first. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so stupid that it's so true, but, you know, we'll progress faster by applying these ideas in business negotiations. You know, we tell people we accelerate their deal-making ability. We save them massive amounts of time. And that's, that's how, I mean, it's a counterintuitive approach. So why do you think that is? Why do you think we've been wired in business to, to be so, I guess, opinionated or, or forceful with our mentality of why we are so valuable and why you should do business with us? Is there something that, is, that we've done as, as organizations from a training standpoint or an onboarding standpoint that has wired us to be that way? I think there's a couple of things out there that have, that have contributed to the problem. Um, you know, this whole nonsense about the yes momentum or yeah. momentum selling where, you know, yeses are micro agreements and, and you get a bunch of micro agreements on the other side and, and they actually call them tie downs yeah. and, they, and they can't get away. So it's this idea that you got to tie the other side down with a series of yes oriented questions, which is basically you trying to make your case in some fashion as if the other side doesn't know what you're doing. Right. I mean, that, that's so stupid and it's so commonplace. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. And then for whatever reason, you know, I'm talking to an executive probably about two or three years ago. And he said, yeah, I went to this negotiation training and they said, make sure the other side, other side understands your position. That's your, you know, make sure they understand your position. I thought, think about in practicality, if that's your goal, then it's two sides talking at each other trying to make sure the other side gets their position and which then means nobody's going to get the other side's position because you're so determined to be understood first instead of of understanding. And I think that's, that's probably the other contributor to it. Uh, And and so does that, because, because I've always been taught that win-win, right? The, the, you want that win-win. So I know the bunch of yeses and I want to come back to that, but then the mentality of going in win-win, um, you talked about how we, we need to understand. And to me, in business negotiations, the goal is win-win, but you're saying the mentality of that is bad. Could you walk me through why the mentality of walking into a negotiations with a win-win mentality is a bad thing? Yeah, well, first of all, if you've got a win-win mentality, you're vulnerable to being taken advantage of. Yep. And, so, and, since, and since you are vulnerable, there are enough negotiators out there that they're going to drop those words win-win on you real early on to see if you bite. Mm-hmm. And, and they're, they're the deal. They're the throw cutters. I mean, consistently when we come into companies, we'll be doing a training session and some exec that's not in the training session with the company will stop me in a lunchroom. And he'll say, I, I hear you guys are bad mouth and win-win. And I got to tell you something. I make deals like that all the time. And I say, well, you know, the reality is, you know, the person that offers to meet you in the middle is often a poor judge of distance. 
and and they kind of smile and they go, yeah. You know, I say win-win, but I always anchor really high so I can end up where I want. Yeah. And so th- these guys are out there. I mean, these guys know that they're getting you. And, and, and any time that somebody approaches us, if the words win-win come out of their mouth in the first three minutes, I know they're trying to cut my throat. I know they, they want me to do it for nothing. They'll say, oh, you know, you're going to get so much exposure. There's so much opportunity if you, if you come into business with it. I mean, that's a con job. That's trying to take me hostage to the future is what that is. Yeah. I have the same thing. I, 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 you go, I mean, you speak at a lot more stuff than I do, but a lot of these conferences will ask me to come and speak for free at this point. Oh, no, we're going to get you in front of a thousand people and they're all going to do business with you and all that other stuff. And I'm just like, yep, I know. I've heard it. Uh, and, yeah. and they're trying to get something for free at the end of the day. But isn't it a good mentality to have? I mean, I understand the actuality of if I were to say to you, there's some red flags. Absolutely. Um, just like the word fair you talk about a lot. Right. Right. Um, there, there's the there's the tactical when somebody says it, but isn't it the right mentality to have to try to walk away? Because if somebody wins and somebody loses, and this is where I kind of get to the difference between uh, hostage negotiations and business negotiations. Hostage negotiations, they're really, uh, I mean, you again, you know more than me, There's, it doesn't seem like there's a win-win. It's like, oh, you don't go to jail and I get my people back, like, yay, right? So you need to make sure that those people don't die. But in business, when we, when we sign up, especially in the industry that I mostly sell into, which is SaaS, right? I mean, we're looking for long-term uh, contracts with clients, whereas customer success and all that other stuff. So if we, if we don't get ultimately somewhat of a win-win, those renewals don't happen, there's animosity in the implementation and all that other stuff so so how do you rectify that yeah well so it's a difference between the outcome and and how the process felt okay um first of all it's got to be collaborative and secondly for you to be able to continue to do business with me at all you have to be better off as a result of the deal because even if you felt good about it which you should you know i don't want you to feel like you lost right so I don't want you to feel like you lost. I want you to feel like you won. And I need you to be better off simultaneously. So, but most people like, I run into so many people that tell me about deals. And they go, you know, I, you know I, let me tell you about this negotiation. I had the other side over a barrel. Well, if you're describing a negotiation like that, that means that they felt like they lost. That you hammered them and you made sure they knew you hammered. Yeah. So you, you cut your own throat because they never want to do business with you again. Mm-hmm. So again, it's, it's, it's the mentality and focusing on the outcome and not being taken hostage to a couple of ideas. You know, first of all, I don't want to be taken hostage to yes in any way, shape or form. I don't want to be taken hostage to the future where you're, you're painting this rosy picture for me in the future. It's going to happen. And I also don't want to be taken hostage by feeling like I can't say no. You know, as soon, as soon as I've reconciled myself to those ideas, then there's a pretty good chance we're going to have a highly collaborative negotiation and you're going to want to continue to do business with me. And is that the big thing that people like what I found is that especially some of the younger reps that I train, um, you know, they think of negotiations as in when the price comes up. Right now we're negotiating. I always try to say, look, you are literally from the minute someone picks up the phone, you're negotiating. Yeah, right. So, so is that one of the bigger mistakes that people think is that they're not in a negotiations from the minute they start engaging with somebody? Yeah, exactly. The most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. 
And, you know, we call that a, a law of negotiation gravity. Um, you may not like it, but gravity's there and you step off that building, you're going to smack the concrete one way or the other anyway when you fall. Okay. And if, you, and if you're not aware of that, then, yeah, by the time price comes up, you've been in a negotiation for a long time, you didn't even know. I mean, when I first started working on, on Never Split the Difference, the first author I spoke to, or a writer that I tried to engage, you know, we went back and forth on the process of how we were going to get together. And, and when this writer finally made, said to me, you know, what, what, the, what she wanted, I just flat rejected it. And, and no, and, and, and stopped talking to her. I mean, people are startled when I stopped talking to them. Well, we've been in a negotiation for a long time. She said, you know, I, I, I thought we were negotiating. I, you know, I thought you were going to give me a counteroffer. And what I didn't say, because I don't have to, but I, like you, we've been negotiating since we first started talking. And you've been a pain in the neck getting to this point for the last two months. And the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. And you've demonstrated to me what implementation with you is going to look like every step of the way. And I don't want any part of it. So, yeah, the most you've been negotiating for a long time. If you think the negotiation is kicking in now, it, pro, it started when the phone was uh, when the phone was picked up, when the cold call was made. Right. And, and so right. let's go back to that getting to know. And, and I think, you know, from a tactical standpoint, when you're making, you know, I, I deal with, again, when we talked about the uh, demographics here, I, I, probably about 75% of my audience are the SDR BDRs, the ones who are making the cold calls, not necessarily negotiating the entire, you know, the, the entire deal, but negotiating for that next step. And so you talk about the power of no and, and starting a cold call, for instance, and saying, hey, did I catch you at a bad time? And that no gives them that, like, usually it's a, well, no, but what? And that you're saying that no gives them power. That no right up front gives them, makes them more comfortable. Yeah, the crazy thing is, is that anytime you try to get a yes out of somebody, if you're asking a question where the answer you're driving for is yes, it stops them. It makes them worried. What am I letting myself in for? What's the hook? How much have I committed myself? What am I not seeing if I say yes? I mean, it literally once. I asked my girlfriend about a shirt that I'd wore that she complimented me on earlier in the day. And, and I said, so you say you like this shirt, right? And she's like, if I say yes, what am I laying myself in for? She literally said that. <laughs> nice. But that's, you know, that's what everybody thinks. If I say yes, what am I letting myself in for? Now, as much anxiety as yes creates, no does the opposite. Like it's stupid that you can simply flip the question and people feel protected and safe when they said no. As, as a parent, when your teenage kid says, dad, can I? I say no. I used to say no before he finished the sentence. But, you know, I, once I said no, I felt protected. And I'd say, all right, now, now tell me again what you wanted. Because I felt like I, I can now listen with no commitment. And as stupid as changing from, have you got a few minutes to talk to is now a bad time. I mean, you could hear people dial in and focus on you when they say that. They'll hesitate for a second. They'll clear their head and they'll say, no, it's not a bad time. Or, no, it's not a bad time, but what are you after? The point is you want their focus and yes creates distractions and, and no clears distractions. Is there, do you see a difference between is, is this a good time versus is this a bad time? I never ask anybody if it's a good time, ever. It's, a, you know, it's counterproductive. Okay. Because... 
is this a good time? Well, I don't know what you want to talk about. I don't know how long you want to talk. Um, I don't know that I want to talk to you. I mean, is now a good time to talk is actually a solid four individual questions. Do I want to talk to you? Do I want to talk about what you want to talk about? How long are we going to be on the phone? How do I get off of the phone? You can't answer that question without having all those subsequent questions running through your mind, which means you're completely distracted. And that's why something as simple as is now a bad time is a really bad question. Mm-hmm. I like it. Let's um, talk about the, uh, the preparation. Right? Some of the, you talk a lot about there's a fine line between preparing for a negotiations where it, it, sometimes you prepare too much and so there you have assumptions and versus hypothesis. So I've always been taught, you know, walk into a negotiation with as much information as you can. You understand their situation, you understand their, op- <coughs> their options, your competition, all of it, so that what, with, with that preparation, you can go in and be ready for whatever they throw at you. But you, you say a couple of times in the book, or when I was reading it, rereading it again, that you don't, sometimes less is more when it comes to preparation for a negotiation. Could you? Yeah, and then... Let me answer that after I go back to what I said a second ago, because um, I think I misstated the question that I said was bad. Have oh. you got a few minutes to talk is a bad question. Yes. Okay. And I, and I think somehow I misstated it a moment ago. Yep. Okay. So now let's go forward to preparation. Mm-hmm. All right. So we got to look at the negotiation process as an information gathering process. So you don't gather your information and then negotiate. You gather some information mm-hmm. and then dive in to confirm it. Um, there's always going to be pieces of information you can only get from the negotiation to start with. Those are black swans. No matter how much research you do, there's no way you can find out what time pressures they're really under without talking to them. No matter what their take is on what you think their problems are. You can't find out if there's anything about your value proposition You can't research it and find out exactly what they value most without getting into the negotiation. There's there's no way you can find that. You can guess, but you can't confirm. So a lot of people are scared to get get caught off guard in the negotiation. You better get caught off guard. Like I said, if you didn't discover stuff in, in uh, in the interaction, then you're actually a horrible negotiator. You're not discovering anything. Um, and then, then, you know, like, uh, there was, uh, one guy in sales that was applying, I must've talked to him two years ago. He's, he's getting the second meeting 80% of the time. Now. And his job is to get on the phone and get a second meeting. And I said, so you, since you're applying our skills among which is he starts out with the question, have I caught you in the middle of something? He said every, every single time the answer is no, but what's this about? And that sort of response tells you that they're completely dialed into you, which is where you want to be. But I, I asked him, how much research is he doing? On Are you doing more research or less? And he said, oh, way less. They're going to tell me more than I could ever find out anyway. Their LinkedIn profile is not going to tell me what I need to know. Their, their Facebook page is not going to tell me what I really need to know. I got to get it from them. So I, I, don't, I totally, I mean, with the... I guess what's, what is, what is too much, right? I mean, what are, what are some of the core things that, that you should prepare for? 
Um, I mean, obviously who you're talking to, what their title is and their background and those type of things. But I like what you talk about as far as instead of role playing things, you, you create hypothesis or you create right. like what's a, what are all the reasons uh, they shouldn't do business with us or something like that. Is, is that the right Is that what we should prepare for? You know, I got to tell you something. And anybody that's ever asked me if I've looked at their website, the only answer they wanted out of my mouth was yes. Like I have not had anybody grill me on the content of their website, where they went to college, the anything beyond the first line of their LinkedIn profile, none of that stuff. You know, there's, there's, they want, they're dying to tell you all that stuff. I mean, they're dying to tell you about it. And if you spend two weeks researching and learning everything about them, they still want to tell you about it. You just blew two weeks. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. People are dying to tell you about it. I mean, they're proud of that LinkedIn profile. They don't want you to read about it. They want to brag about it to you. So minimal exposure to this information is all, is all you need. Can I, can I ask you something on that note specifically, though? Is, is that a byproduct of their desire to want to talk, or is that a byproduct in the sales world of bad sales? And let me give you an example. Um, historically, before LinkedIn and before websites, you know, not before websites, but before LinkedIn and stuff like that, back when I was selling early 2000s, <laughs> late 99 type of thing, you know, it was a valid question or it was a valid statement to get in front of you and say, so Chris, tell me about your business, right? And so it would prompt the, well, we were founded in this and we did that and da, 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 and that would be their chance to tell you about their business, right? Now, I actually think that very generic phrase is a very insulting thing to say because they put so much effort into telling the world about their business that, that you not being prepared and understanding their business, I'm, look, I'm all for asking contextual questions about your business, but not the broad statement, tell me about your business. And I, and I feel like we've done the, uh, the prospects of disservice and they're so conditioned because most sales reps are still lazy. They don't do homework. And so people jump right into, well, John, let me give you a little background on us. And, and as they're doing that, I, like, I appreciate that, but it's almost like I want to preempt that. And I've had it before where I've been like, look, Chris, I appreciate, you know, I, I, I take a look at your quick website. I know where you were founded. I know what you're, now I have some qualified, I have some uh, questions about your business, but we don't, we don't have to go through the history here. And it's almost like they, you feel them being like, oh, uh, okay, wait, we can have a real conversation here with a sales rep who's actually done, you know, like, isn't going to ask me the bullshit questions. So what are your thoughts on, on, on that, where we've conditioned them to do that versus their true desire to talk about? All right. So it's an interesting question. And I think it's really how salespeople get off track. Um, because really me, none, none of your clients care as much about whether or not you know their history as to whether or not you know their challenges. Now, there's no shortage of B2B surveys that say the vast majority of buyers prefer to talk to experts on the industry. Mm-hmm. By definition, that means they prefer to talk to people that know nothing about them. An expert doesn't know you from Adam. An expert understands the challenges of the industry. Now, it might be cool that you know 
that I was founded in 2008 and I'm a founder, CEO, owner, it's a family business. It might be cool, again, to give me warm and fuzzies. But if you don't know anything about my industry, as soon as I find out you don't know anything about the industry, not me, the industry, I got no time for you. And I will dial somebody up on the phone who's an expert on the challenges of the industry who doesn't have any idea about any of my history. So, you know, this idea, you know, relationships are great, but business is more important than friendship. Friendship should follow from business, not vice versa. I could love you as a person. Our kids could play softball together. Maybe you love coaching Little League the same way I love coaching. If you don't understand the challenges of my industry, you're wasting my time. So the, what people need to research, what salespeople need to research are actual challenges as opposed to company histories. Because what I was faced with back in 2008 is not what I'm faced with today. You could give me chapter and verse about what happened when I founded my company and how long I've been in existence. I still have no idea whether or not you understand the challenges I'm faced with right now. I like that. So, so let's kind of talk about that as far as challenges versus uh, opportunities, if you will. I mean, loss aversion is huge. Okay. And, and it's, what is it? Three or four X. Let, let, let me stop you right there. Please. It's not huge. It's the single driving decision factor. It is the biggest factor in decision-making. It outweighs everything else. And nothing concept, else is close. The concept here is you'd much, I'd, if you, Save two hundred thousand, or gain two hundred thousand. Or I'm sorry, not lose two hundred thousand or win two hundred thousand. Most people would do everything not to lose the two hundred thousand, then get the opportunity to win the two hundred thousand. Is that effectively kind of a, an easy breakdown of it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and and I couldn't tell you what the source is, but somebody that was quoting sales stats to me not long ago, so I'm satisfied with the person said that 70% of buy decisions are made to avoid loss, not to accomplish gain. 70% to you, avoid a loss. Do you think that's dependent on who? In the sense that I talk a lot about the power line, right? People below and above the power line. People below the power line are focused on today or yesterday, which is usually pain, right? Because they're in it. Whereas people above the power line, like decision makers, those type of things are focused on the future. So my general guidelines to reps is, you know, the, the C-level executive doesn't want to talk about feature function pain stuff because that's what they delegate to. They want to talk about where am I going? Like, how are you going to help me get to where I want to be, which is aligning with their priorities? So do you think that loss aversion is as strong with, a, with an executive leader who's trying to bring a company to the next level over the next 12 to 24 months? Well, you're talking about what their vision is and their fear over losing that vision, aren't you? Fair enough. See, and that's why you got to be real careful over assuming that you know what their their loss is. Okay. Uh, and that's why, you know, hostage negotiation techniques are designed to get into somebody's head and find out what's in there. Right. You know, we got we got to get in there and we got to find out what's in there. And simultaneously, there's the same set of techniques that you can get in there. You know, you've gotten permission to get in and find out what their vision is, what their fear of loss is. And the way you got in gives you the opportunity to make some changes because of the way that you got in. It gives you the opportunity to have what we call trust-based influence. So, you know, uh, the, the executive, like if he's got his eyes fixed on growing to 
$100 million in the next two years. And he's got a path. What he's afraid of is not, is losing that opportunity, losing that growth. And so the, the fear of loss thing, you got to be careful about what your assumptions that you're making. And then also you got to be really careful about how you wield that power, how you get into understanding what that potential loss is. Uh, takes you from being someone who's a trusted advisor to someone who's trying to take them hostage. So, I mean, it, 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 it's really is a matter of definition, but there, there, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, the overriding driver of decision-making so much so that's why in a book we call it bending reality yeah. because you bend people's reality when you understand what, what the losses that they're trying to avoid are. And, and is this more of a, is this almost always a personal thing as it relates to that person when you're talking negotiations? Cause you know, we've all been taught like people buy on emotion, they back up with facts, right? So when you're selling, um, and first of all, I want to see if you believe that, uh, second of all, if, if you do or don't, um, when you're, when you're negotiating with somebody is, is your goal to understand the personal drivers of that person to be able to uncover this, or is it really more to focus on the business drivers? Yeah. Well, the, the dominating decision is going to be how it affects them personally. What's in it for me? Okay. How are you going to help right. me? You know, and, and that's why, and if it wasn't that, I mean, executives and business people and, you know, contracts people you know, across the board, no one would ever make a stupid decision right. uh, that would hurt their company. Yeah. But when it comes down to it, you know, people are, people are worried about themselves first. And depending upon the company environment, um, you know, it might not be a team atmosphere. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you know the, the culture code, um, um, Daniel, Daniel Coyle, mm-hmm. yeah, a culture code and talent code, two brilliant books by the same guy. He talks about, uh, I, I think the stat that he quoted that only 6% of people, of business people know their company's values. Huh. 6%. Wow. If that's true, and it's probably pretty close, then this is not a team-oriented culture. So they got to be out for themselves. You don't even know what the company's values are. Your executives aren't living it. Hmm. If your executives aren't living the values then you you better you're looking out for yourself because the other people are not looking out for you they're looking out for themselves i mean culture culture is a, a dicey issue um that a lot of people overlook well we should think as a team we should think as a team it makes it's only smart to think as a team mm-hmm. yeah it's true but should you know it's a if you're saying the word should that means that reality and philosophy are not lined up are out of alignment so I've been talking a lot about values recently. So you kind of struck a nerve there. Um, first of all, why don't most organizations, I mean, there's mission statement, vision statement stuff, but why don't you think more companies um, define and live their values from a, from a leadership standpoint? I, well, it, it takes a lot of effort. It's a hard thing to do. Yeah. And you also become fear driven and, you know, have, uh, did you define them for yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the problem is, it, they just it's it's hard to get them to line up yeah you know it's we focus on that all the time i mean internally in our company we're always talking about it now we're you know we're a relatively new company we're a uh, family-owned business we're you know we're defining ourselves as we go and we know some companies that are really good people out there i mean we just stopped doing business with one company because of values i don't know what their core values are as articulated but i can tell you 
the values that they live are contrary to ours. So with that, my, I said this the other day on a panel, you know, communities, they would ask me about building communities. And I said, the, the most important thing about a community is that you, you have shared values. You can argue, you can debate, we can, we can disagree as long as we have shared values. Do you think that's the same? First of all, do you agree with that? Second of all, do you think that's the same in business negotiations where you and I, at least from a value standpoint, treating people right, not being an asshole, you know, whatever those are, like we have to align at least a little bit in order for this relationship to work. Is that, is that like a critical factor to try to uncover? Yeah. Well, we're, we're never going to be able to implement it otherwise. Right. You know, and, and, and it could be, uh, there could be little things like uh, a company that we, you know, we've had some value alignment mismatch recently. They've been very successful lately. Uh-huh. So uh, they're in the entertainment industry. So now their risk aversion is high, which means they're scared to death of not having a success. Uh You know, we want to engage in something with them where there's no guarantee of success. So they're horrified that they'll drop something in the entertainment industry that's not as successful as the other things that they've done. Now they're extremely risk-averse. They're no longer entrepreneurial. They're no longer willing to take the risks that they were willing to take three years ago. They throw something out there and they say, you know, we'll work like crazy. We'll make it successful. You know, it's it's like somebody, I can't, you know, an an author who's who's had a great book who refuses to do another one because they're afraid the second one won't be as successful as the first. People's fear of failure increases highly after their successes and they lose their entrepreneurial edge. And that's really the biggest problem with our core value mismatch now, which I pointed out to him. I said, you know, uh, we're willing to do this and it might not be that great. And I said, you guys are terrified that you'll drop something out there that's not as successful as your last project and then you'll be criticized over it. And they went, "Eh, yeah, (laughs) that's it exactly. So did their values change? I think so. I think think that's what happens with a lot of people. They, They don't feel like their values have changed. And they probably feel like the same people. They just haven't become aware of how risk averse they are right now. Because I've really been trying to think this through from a sales training, but also from my own approach of, you know, I talk when we, when, when we do prospecting, for instance, look for triggers. Hey, you know, they open up a new office, they launch a new product and make a connection to that. Say, hey, I saw that happen. You know, we help companies where in that stage, let's talk. It's just, a, you know, a personalized way. But I've been really toying around the idea of, trying to figure out how to align values because I think once if I can come across somebody who I can connect with pretty much immediately because I can tell their values are similar to me similar to mine like I don't want to say the sale takes care of itself but man it's so much easier to have that real conversation and not bullshit conversation where it's you know real surface oriented and I'm trying to figure out how do I get to that early so that so that I can get in and out of deals faster with people who I know share a core value of mine is there something you do to, to uncover that part uh, early? Well, it, it not as we're probably looking after values right after the fact that we try to figure out whether or not there's a deal there anyway. Okay. Um, this is something that we've discovered is a much bigger problem in the, in the business community than, than we realized before the book came out because we're consulting all the time now. Right. But, you know, for example, there's no such thing as an open mind, period. Nobody that you encounter has an open mind. And the B2B data out there now is at 50% uh, 
of people have made up their mind, 50% of buyers have made up their mind before their first contact with a salesperson. Half made up their mind before they contact the salesperson. Now, nobody's close rate is 50%, which means, you know, what's wrong with the math problem? Well, I came across a book, The Challenger Sale, recently. They pegged a number at 20% of opportunities that come salespeople's way, that come business's way, are actually fake. You know, they don't use the term fake. They have a different different term, but it's fake opportunities. People are doing due diligence. Yeah. They're checking, the, you know, you're the competing bid. They get somebody they want to go with. They need three competing bids, so they go with who they want to go with. They just want to price with you. They just want the terms with you to prove that they can, they're doing due diligence is what they're doing. And in effect, and why this number is low is because in this survey, they're asking people how often they lie to salespeople. Now, there's no way that, that they're inflating the amount of time that they're lying to salespeople. They're hedging on that. If, you know, nobody's going to admit to all the times that they lied. So there's that 20% number has to be low to start with. And then, then the second problem is, there's more uh, B2B data out there that says that even if they haven't made up their mind, there's somewhere between 70 and 80% of the way through the decision-making process before they talk to a salesperson. And that's admitted. I mean, there are a lot of people out there that I think feel that they have an open mind. I'm willing to be talked into this, but I'm so prejudiced to begin with. You know, I've made, I've done so much research that, you know what, you, you probably never had a chance at all. So we got to find out in the opening conversation whether or not there's any opportunity there at all. And now we'll talk about cultural values, but you may be just looking for free consulting or due diligence. And I got to know about those things before I put any more time into this. So that's, I call that happy years, right? The, the reps who hear what they want to hear. I think you have it as selective listening or whatever, but I call it happy years, right? They hear right. what they want to hear because right. oh, it's a deal. Oh yeah, I'm interested. And we, our negotiations, it's, it's a really simple but effective um, give get, right? So what we do is we do uh, uh, brainstorm all the gives. What are all the things your clients ask of you? They want information, they want discounts, they want proposals, they want ROI and well, all that stuff prioritize it one to tw- like 20, say that's a number, you know, could be more, could be less, but easy to give away, hard to give away, and then flip it over and say, what do we want? What are the gets, right? So we want, um, so gives to the client and then gets for us, which is we want decision process, timeline, signed contract, testimonial, early, late, and then match it up. So when somebody asks for a five, I'm asking for a five in return, 10, 10, and we score deals, right? So I gave away a one, a five, and a six. I got a two, a four, and a seven, that score 12 to 13, tells me how healthy the deal is objectively and it works off of reciprocity which i know you're a fan of which is when somebody asks for something they feel obligated to give you something in return the funny thing is is when we get everything right and don't give anything in return sometimes reps that's happy years but what they're not realizing is if somebody if you're not giving somebody something that means a you're consciously not doing it or b they're not asking for anything and if they're not asking for anything that's a that's a dangerous sign so how do you prevent happy ears? How do you prevent a rep early on from hearing what they want to hear as they, as they enter a negotiation? Because that, that's what kills reps is that those deals that they think that they say, they're, they're saying there's a chance. And so they sit in their pipeline forever. And those are the ones that the managers get pissed off at month over month because they, they hear what they're, so how do we prevent that? Well, I mean, you gotta, you gotta be willing to challenge the contacts from the very beginning. I mean, the question you got to be willing to ask is like, you know, there, there, there are a lot of people out there. You know, we got a lot of competitors. 
you get you get people that are good. I mean, I'm impressed with our competitors. What made you choose us? Now, if they if they don't give you an answer to that, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, anything better than I found you on Google, right? <laughs> yeah, well, they, you know, they, they if they say I found you on Google, they haven't chosen you, right? Or you know, a, a, a big one is, will you tell me? It's right back on you. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you're in trouble now. You're in trouble right now. But you, you hope that you have such a great value proposition. You can win the day. You hope your sales skills are so good. You can win the day, and you won't take. You won't. You won't listen. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's the biggest problem. I mean, the biggest thing is that uh, customers, clients, people who are buying. They hate not being listened to more than anything else. And yet every salesperson wants to make a case, wants to make a value proposition, wants to tell why they're the best choice. That by definition is not listening. Should you almost disqualify more than you qualify? You should be ready to instantly disqualify somebody. Now, I think the number is is well in excess of 50%. So if, if that's anywhere true, and we've got clients now that we're coaching on this are telling us that the number can be as high as 80%, then just by sheer numbers, mm-hmm. yeah, you should be disqualifying more than you talk to. I mean, everybody out there, you know, some of the, stat, some of the stats out there, are that 3% of, the, 3% of the people there are you should convert, 3%. Then that means that 95, 97% are to be disqualified. Mm-hmm. But nobody acts like that's the case, although everybody knows that those are what the stats are. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because I think that that we're in this world of like short-term results, which is driving bad behavior, which is preventing people from, you know what I mean? Want like forcing almost reps, especially young ones who are inexperienced and haven't gone through the hurt of having a, a huge pipeline that nothing closes in. Um, you know, they so we push them towards these monthly things, which drives bad behavior. Um, so I don't, I actually am, I'm worried that we're in this world where we're in the, almost a transition world, I think, right now, where it used to be a numbers game. And so that's kind of how sales was approached in a lot of ways. And so kind of Gen Xers, right? like that's how we grew up. I mean, when I grew up in sales, it was here's your quota, here's your territory, here's a phone, go. Okay, right? Now I think everybody understands quality is the issue, empathy's, uh, quality is the answer, empathy is the answer. But we're stuck in this old school mentality forcing because it's way easier to coach towards numbers. Like, you, did you make your 50 dials today? Did you hit your quota today versus actually coaching on quality? So is there a way as managers, for instance, um, we can tr- help drive, help reps drive short term results while having that tactical empathy, while having that disqualification mentality, especially in, you know, you work at a lot of publicly traded companies. You know what I mean? If they miss their numbers on a quarterly basis, you know, all of a sudden Wall Street comes down on them pretty hard. So are there things that that you talk to people about, about how to put them in a position to be able to listen uh, while still hitting their numbers um, and those short-term results that we're looking for? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's stupidly simple. Uh, You know, all you got to do is change the way you evaluate them and you compensate them. Uh But nobody's willing to do that. I mean, I, I, uh, I gave a keynote presentation to a company the other day that I'm really impressed with because of the dedication to their clients. It's, it's SAP. Uh-huh. And I'm sitting around with them at dinner and I'm like, wow, you guys, you guys, you guys learn fast. 
you guys seem to like each other. I mean, I'm blown away at not only how fast you guys learn, but the fact that you guys enjoy working together. And one of the executives said, yeah, well, you know, one of our main core values is we can't let our clients fail, which means we're, they all unify over this great purpose. You can't let, you know, because they agree that they got to knock themselves out for their clients. Mm-hmm. So that goes back to the value conversation, right? <laughs> yeah. but And at the same time, though, you know, in, in the training session, they said, all right, so how do we handle a procurement guy calling us? with two days left in a quarter. I said, that's easy. Don't make the deal. Stop evaluating, stop grading your people on quarterly results. You're taking your people hostage if you're putting them on quarterly results. I got news for you. That procurement guy, he's praying to God because he thinks he's got leverage for 48 hours and he or she is not prepared to wait three more months for this window to come back up. So in reality, the person on the other side is a lot more scared than you are. If you're just willing to accept that, that they think they're done if they don't cut the deal with you in the next 48 hours, but they're taking themselves hostage over quarterly results. And you just, you just said something, you know, Wall Street's holding these, holding these people to quarterly results. Only if you care if Wall Street bad mouse you, or only if you care if your stock dips, dips by five, five cents, and as soon as you pull yourself, as soon as you stop taking yourself hostage over quarterly results, as soon as you stop taking your people hostage over quarterly results, now they can perform. Now, now, now with two days left in a quarter, they're not scared to death. They're, they're willing to wait. So how would you do it? How would, if you were to build a company um, and compensate to, to, to compensate, uh, you know, we do have to drive results on a consistent basis, right? So it all doesn't happen at the end of the year or something like that. So kind of in, in a utopic scenario, if you will, what would your best approach to organizations be as far as compensating sales reps on their, on their results? There's a fair amount of data out there that sales reps do better if they're just on straight salary. Okay. You know, so, you know, take, take a look at the people that are working for you. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody responds to, to compensation differently. I mean, be willing to tailor your compensation. Some person just, some guys just want to work on commission. They want to know the sky's the limit. Mm-hmm. You know, you got that guy, guy or gal, fine. They thrive under that environment. Mm-hmm. Some people just want to know that they can make their monthly mortgage payment. Right. And if, if they're satisfied they can make that payment, They'll work 24-7 for you. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, when I, when I was with the FBI, I was on straight salary. I, was, I worked my last seven years on the job. I don't know that I had two days off in a row because I loved what I was doing. I mean, I was into it. I mean, people used to say to me, you breathe what you do. Uh-huh. I didn't have to worry about how much money was coming in the door. I knew exactly how much money was coming in on my paycheck every two weeks. And I was the type of person that would just knock myself out because they didn't have to worry about the amount of money that was coming in. So, you know, be willing to tailor your compensation to your people so that they can thrive and then have a, have an ongoing conversation with them and make sure they continue to thrive because there's a pretty good chance that however you dial it up for them at the very beginning is going to be wrong or at least need adjustment. So say, all right, so here's a compensation package that we're going to start out with. And then let's talk about how things are going in three months, in four months, in five months, to see whether or not you're thriving. And let's make the adjustments so you can't thrive. I mean, and look, I'm running my company, and that's the way that, that's 
We're changing our compensation slightly, tweaking it all the time because we want our people to thrive. I love it. Going back to that procurement example that you used um, and, and also bad behavior by reps. When I, one of the things I come across all the time and, and I, you know, biggest challenge I see sales reps having is creating urgency. Like how, how, do, how to create urgency when it's seemingly not there? right? When, when they don't have to do it, it's a like to have, not a must have those type of things, right? What do you try to do to uncover urgency so that the reps don't default to end of the month discounting and those type of sad, sad things? Any insights on urgency? And how yeah, to well, it's, start? it's the issue of what's top of mind with people and what can you count on to consistently eat at people? You know, the, the great question, you know, what's keeping you up at night? Uh-huh. All right, so yeah, you you got to get in their head and find out what's keeping them up at night, uh-huh. and then you know you know there's a presumption here that what you're offering actually has value. I mean, one of the one of the greatest greatest sales pitches I ever heard. Um, a gentleman had a company that uh, put together compensation packages, retirement packages for executives, you know, uh, effectively golden handcuffs. You know, we we put together such a great package for for you, you're never going to leave. So it was uh, pension investing golden handcuffs if you will so his pitch to companies wasn't here's how much money i can make for you or here's how much i can help you retain your executives he said let let us take a look at the package that you've got now and we'll compare what we could do versus what you're doing and then he would come back and say all right stay where you are now don't change a thing and this is how much it's going to cost you every day Okay. That keeps people up at night. When the status quo, you need top of mind, when the stat, when your vision of what's going on now, when what you perceive the status quo to be, to be costing you every day, day in and day out. That's what keeps people, t- that's what keeps things, keeps things top of mind. And so, because I, be- I believe that, you know, there's, I don't know if you follow Gong, but you know the Gong.io blog? I don't. So if you quote a lot of stats, go to gong.io and check out their blog. They got one blog post that's 55 sales tips that are the best sales tips you've ever read. And it's, and it's off the charts because it's, they do, they use artificial intelligence to analyze phone calls, like millions of phone calls that reps make through their system. And they, they tailor like what, you know, great people do versus what average people do. And one of their things is, you know, the number one goal that we have as sales professionals is to get you to, before I can sell you anything, I have to get you to agree that status quo is not okay. Like you have to make a change. And if you, and if I can't convince you that you have to make a change, then the rest of that stuff doesn't matter. So there, for instance, like selling to the C-suite, it's about coming up with your nexus. Like, what do you believe that, that, that in this industry, um, that is a polarizing statement that either people get people to say, holy shit, yes, or no, I completely disagree. So in our world right now, you know, sales training, one of my nexuses is uh, I, I think sales methodologies are bullshit. I, I think the historical sales methodology is bullshit. And because if you're not in agile sales right now and constantly iterating and trying new things, you're going to be a dinosaur if you subscribe to any one singular methodology. Now, there are people out there that are flat out methodology people. You know, I'm a Miller Hyman guy. I'm a Taz guy. I'm a Sandler guy, that type of stuff. And going back to values, like you and I are on the same page, so let's stop talking now. 
But once you hit that nexus, then it's what's the statistic that says where, you know, whether you like it or not, the industry is changing. And so you have to make a change. And then you talked about your unique piece there uh, and then you share a story. So it's kind of a four step process of selling to the C-suite, which I'm a huge fan of. So do you agree that it's our first job to get people to commit to the fact that they have to make a change? Well, I, um, the status quo has got to be the problem. Yeah. Yeah. The status quo has got to be the source of loss. How big of a loss does it have to be in order to get you to move? Uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, loss things twice as much as, as an equivalent gain, according to prospect theory, which they won the Nobel Prize for in behavioral economics. And Danny Kahneman then gave an interview where he said that um, it's actually five times as much. We just lowered the number to two because we wanted fewer arguments from our academic colleagues. <laughs> so any, any loss is a distorted perception. So you got to find out what's in the other guy's head, you know, guy, generic, guy or gal. Yeah. Um, and it's not something you can calculate in advance because your calculations are not bent by the feeling of loss the way it is on a person you're talking to. And so there's a lot. So, so I'm trying to focus a lot more these days on like impact questions. Like how can I ask questions that uncover the impact of you making this or not making this decision? But what are your thoughts on like quantifying that impact and like, you know, and, and going to down the road of like ROI calculator type stuff? Because, and, and you know, some reason I ask is because I've always looked at ROI calculators, even if a rep uses my numbers and all that other stuff, you know, okay, fine, that dollar figure, good. But there's still something that I, I don't trust about it. So what's your stance on quantifiable pain, if you will? Uh, and then using that, but but it's not always as obvious. No, nah, I don't. I don't think you can do it. Okay. Not at all. I mean, um, because uh, and here's an example. Um, uh, one of the, one of the negotiation cases at Harvard that we used to exercise all the time was called radio station, the sale of a radio station, where the guy who was selling um, was just not taking any sort of offer whatsoever for his radio station. Now, it ended up being a real case um, that Roger Fisher, you know, the author of Getting to Yes, actually mm -hmm. solved. Mm -hmm. and the interesting thing about Roger Fisher is his emotional intelligence was through the roof. There isn't any emotional intelligence in Getting to Yes. It is utterly rational and people are utterly emotional, yeah. which is why, unfortunately, Getting to Yes is not going to do you any good. But I remember hearing this story. And when Roger Fisher solved this and got the guy to sell the radio station, he went down and talked to the guy, and the guy said, my wife's going to kill me if I sell this radio station. Right. So how do you calculate that ROI? Yeah, I, I forget. I think Gary Vaynerchuk's the one who says, how do you calculate the ROI of your mom? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I mean, so what, what, what's really driving it, people, is not going to be quantifiable in a spreadsheet. And you can sit down and run every number that they give you and have them agree that everything about your analysis is flawless and it's going to cost them this amount of money. And it's not going to matter to them because what's really driving them is going to be some emotional factor that you can't put in a spreadsheet. And so with that, to your point of 
you know, going back to urgency, um, they're losing, you know, uh, by not doing this, they're losing every day. Like that, that example that you use right there. So, okay. So great. I'm losing, you know, by not doing this, I'm uh, yeah. Okay. I'm losing a hundred thousand dollars a day. What's missing? Is, is there, is there, is there the, the emotional connection to it? Like, Hey, I don't get, like, yeah, that makes sense. I'm, we're losing a hundred, a hundred thousand dollars a day by not doing this. I get it. Um, was there something else other than that number that got that deal to go through? Well, yeah. Now if some, if somebody, if you, if you're not making a case based on your numbers and you're not paying any attention to what's driving them. Okay. So yeah, you, you, you gotta, you gotta get in there and find out what's going on. I mean, this gets us back into get into their head and find out what they're really seeing. And you're not going to be able to find that out unless you, unless you come in with an emotional intelligence approach which assumes that people are not rational and that, you know, uh, it's, it's the iceberg is the cliche to everything. But the, unfortunately, the reason it keeps coming up is there's more here than meets the eye. And your analysis is based on what meets the eye. So how is it possible your analysis could be accurate? I, I could keep this conversation going forever. I, I got one more question um, that I'm personally curious about. You talk a lot about mirroring. Um, where you say the last three words and what somebody says and the power of that, and then you just shut up. The mirroring versus layering. Example, when you object, okay, or when you say something that's like, look, we don't have the budget for this, right? Mirroring is so you don't have the budget. Sit, let it sit. So, uh, layering would be, help me understand, what do you mean by you don't have the budget? Is one more powerful than the other? Because what you're both trying to do is get them to talk more and, and really uncover the true like meaning behind what they're saying there. Is there a difference between that? And, and do you see one as more valid than the other in, in certain circumstances? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, a, a, absolutely. Because to, to begin with, if you're at the point where somebody says, we don't have the budget, and you say, help me understand, what do you mean by you don't have the budget? You're telling them that you have not been paying attention up to now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I, mean, I use that as like kind of a very simple example, but but you just see what I'm saying, like layering questions to tell me more about that. Could you explain to me? Could you give me an example of versus hold it? By the first thing you said, tell me more about that's not a question; it's a command. And then you followed up with two straight yes-oriented questions, which are trap questions. Okay. But nobody wants to say yes to anything. Okay. So you, you hit me with what three straight bad communication techniques. Okay. Right off the bat. Tell me more about that. It's not a question. It's a command. It's a grab for autonomy. It's an attempt to take control of a conversation. Taking control is taking away somebody's autonomy, which we will die to preserve our autonomy. But don't, when you talk about calibrated questions, isn't, don't you talk about how the, you want to make the um, illusion of, of them on, in control when you're actually in command? Uh, we want to have the upper hand. We don't want to have control. Okay. I mean, and, and I'll tell you something else. We don't try to get information by asking questions. We use questions to shape thoughts. Questioning to gather information is a third of the people that you run into will be so-so with it. And two thirds of them are not going to like it at all. The very, the very analytical person, every time you ask them a question, they stop and they think, I have to think through the implications 
of every possible answer before I get back to you. So I can't answer you for at least two days. <laughs> okay. So and, what do you, sorry. So so I mean we don't we don't use questions. All right. So if somebody somebody says for the what was the uh, it's too much. What was your example before? Yeah. So it's like, it, it's, too we don't much. have the budget for this. Yeah. We don't have the budget for this. This is, this is out of our budget range or something like that. Right. So you you want to demonstrate understanding. What do they tell you if they don't have the budget for it? They're yeah. telling you one of two things, They're either under pressure or what you're offering is not delivering adequate value. Right. The value alignment. Yep. So a demonstration of understanding would be, Seek first to understand, then be understood. Demonstrate understanding. Sounds like the value is just not there for you. They have just communicated to you very clearly that something's wrong with your proposition. And instead of you demonstrating any understanding of that in any way, shape, or form, instead you want to challenge them as if they weren't listening. Help me understand here. What's not here for you? which is equivalent of saying, you know, you haven't been paying attention. So I'm going to have to go back over my value proposition again because you're not paying attention. So let me, let me see if I can isolate where you weren't paying attention so I can go back and correct you. I mean, that's what you're communicating when you say, help me understand what about this is invaluable for you. Okay. And, and, and in most cases, a lot of people probably say it in a tone of voice that indicates that you think they're stupid. Yeah. So, but to say, sounds like the value is just not here for you. Is, a, is an indication of understanding and it's an invitation to fix it. And it's taking responsibility on your side to be, to be responsive to them instead of them being responsive to you. Cool. And what you're searching for is the that's right, not your right. right? Uh, well, exactly. At some point in time, you get, you, 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 if, if somebody's saying you're right to you, that's... they are trying to finish the interaction and go home. <laughs> you want to go to lunch. It's the same reason why you don't say I understand because what's the, what's the negative part of me? Like after you tell me, so there's one about summarizing and rephrasing back to you, but then after you tell me something and me saying, I understand, what's the danger of that? Well, all right, let, let's pretend like you actually do understand. Right. But when you say that they're not clear on what you understand. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're trying to give them the cliff notes version of it. I mean, how do they, if you say, I, I understand, how do they know, how do they really know that they got their points across if you don't repeat back to them the points that they, in fact, got across? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, since we were kids, we, we played the telephone game. You know, tell somebody a secret. By the time you tell four other people, the secret's completely changed. I mean, it's, it's nearly impossible to hear somebody's side of things the first time and get it right. So... To say I understand, even if you do, chances are, let's say you're the best listener in the world. Chances are you got it 80% right. And you're taking a real risk on a percentage that you got wrong. So I understand is, that's just too nebulous. You tell me that you understand, I'm not sure I'm getting a warm and fuzzy feeling that you actually do. And in most cases, I understand proceeds, but here's where you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Is it is it okay to say? Let me make sure I heard you correctly. 
and then rephrase it back to them? Or is there a better way of, of, of summarizing what you heard from them that, that makes them more open to understand that you really do understand? No, that's not bad at all. I mean, you know, we don't coach people to say it like that. There are other ways um, of saying it. I mean, let me make sure I heard you correctly as a command. And it's a, it's a grab at control again. And it's to take autonomy from the other side. And, you know, I mean, that just, that just, uh, commands just, uh, they just don't sit well with other people. I mean, if you're a frontline salesperson and your CEO sets you down, you, you might be a little bit slow to say, tell me more about that. Or let me make sure I understand, you know, you, you might, you might want to demonstrate your understanding, um, or you might change your tone of voice. But, you know, we like deference to begin with, uh, which is not to take control. You know, we love deference as an approach because there's great, there's great power in deference. I mean, we love deference because everybody loves it. If I'm deferential to you, you're going to give me a lot more opportunity to talk because I'm deferential. You're going to feel like you can stop me at any time. I mean, we, lo- we love deference. So it's more in the sense of it seems like you're those that instead of let me make sure I heard this correctly scenario. Yeah. And, and again, tone of voice is going to make a big difference mm-hmm. I mean, you, you can get away with a lot of bad words with great tone. <laughs> yeah, you, do. you know, I, and we were, um, we were co- on a coaching call just the other day and, you know, we coach people to identify negatives, identifying a negative diffuses it. And people say, okay, that makes sense to me. And we say, and identifying a negative never plants it. And they go, okay, that makes sense to me. And then we say, all right, so let's be proactive. Let's say, all right, you pro- you're probably upset with us. They say, oh my God, that's, you know, they, they're going to respond to us. Well, I wasn't, but I am now. But wait a second, two seconds ago, you agreed that we couldn't plant negatives. And now you're, now you're arguing. So we get somebody arguing with us. And so I just stopped and I said, so it sounds like when I said identifying negatives doesn't plant them, you thought it was wrong? Now, listen, listen, that my tone was clear there, right? Mm-hmm. And I could have said, so it sounds to me like when I said identifying negatives doesn't plan them, you thought I was wrong. Same words. Much different. Tone of voice on a second one kills me. But the first one, you know, I'm the, the tone of voice I'm, makes all the difference in the world. I mean, I'm, I'm a thousand percent convinced that, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort. And, you know, everybody wants to learn from Jordan Belfort. God, no. Fuck no. Sorry. And, <laughs> but they do, right? Yeah. So what, what, what was there to learn from him? And in my view, tone of voice. Yeah. Well, the guy, the guy, I think the guy mastered tonality. Did he? I mean, a thousand, and, and clearly he mastered something because yeah. he wouldn't owe $100 million in restitution, which means he stole way more than that. You know, but I mean, so what did he do? Because yeah, you, you take a look at straight line selling and it's no matter what the client says, your widget is the answer. I mean, that by definition is not listening. So how, how, did, how, did, he, how did he get over so much? And in my view, the guy mastered tonality. And, and that is something that's fair for anybody to master. Yeah. I'm not a fan otherwise. Don't get me wrong. I, I, you know, the guy owes... The only reason that if you should ever consider buying his book, 
would be to help give some of the hundred million dollars back because he owes restitution based on book sales. Yeah, tell me about it. I, I, whenever anybody asks me what my favorite sales movies are, you know, they Wolf of Wall Street, Boiler Room, Glengarry, Glenn Ross, I tell them no. Those are literally the worst sales movies I've ever seen in my life. You know, they're great movies, they're funny, but they're literally everything that's wrong about selling. It, yeah. It, everything that's wrong about selling. And I tell them to go look, the two best sales movies, and actually I'll finish with this, I wanna understand what yours are. My two favorite sales movies, uh, uh, Pursuit of Happiness, right, with Will Smith, wow. and Tommy Boy. Have you ever watched Tommy Boy? I didn't. I never thought of it as a sales movie, but you know, it's a it's a great thought. It's a great Go watch it because I, I talk about catching your sales groove, right? And there's a, there's a moment in every sales rep's life where they wake up and it's just a little bit easier today than it was yesterday, and you don't know when it was, but it's when you stop pitching your solutions and you start having conversations about your solutions. Ah, you right. Start caring more about the client's needs than you do about your commission check. And there's that beautiful moment in Tommy Boy where he catches his sales groove. Helen, you look like a Helen. Let me tell you why I suck as a sales rep. And he goes through this whole, like, Jojo, the idiot circus boy with a pretty new pet. And she's like, wow, you're twisted. You know, I'll go fire up those wings. You go, oh, Tommy like you, Tommy want wingy. You know, in that moment, he was, he, he caught a sales groove. Because before that, he was pitching. He was trying to be like his dad. You could stick your head up a butcher's ass type of stuff, right? And couldn't figure it out. And then after, and then it was just him. And it was empathy. It was self-deprecation. And so it's a, it's a beautiful uh, sales movie if you, if you get a chance to go see it again. <laughs> I'll probably go back and watch it again. Yeah, go watch it. Put the sales lens on. Because right, it's funny. At first, it's like, yeah, Tommy, boy, that's fun. You know, big fat guy making fun of himself. But look at it with the sales lens on. It's, it's a blast. <laughs> so. That's really cool. Yeah, all right. Very good. Do you have any uh, favorite sales movies or anything like that? Or, or... Uh, you know, well, that I've, I look at it through a different lens. I look at it through negotiation, right, right. And as, as, opposed to, as opposed to sales. But that, mm-hmm. that's a lens I'm going to have to go back and take another look at it. Awesome. Well, Chris, this has been, like I said, I think I'd, I'd love to have an entire day with you asking all these questions just for myself and me learning on my end. But um, but I think we've got to cut this up. Uh, tell everybody uh, how they can learn more. I know you got public workshops. I know you got your blog. I know you got a bunch of things. So tell everybody how they can find out more information and pretty much mandate. I'm going to mandate everybody who listens to me go pick up uh, Never Split the Difference if they haven't already because it's it's one of my favorite negotiations. Thanks. So how can people learn more? Yeah, well, our newsletter slash blog is a great supplement to the book. I mean, a lot of people get a long way on just the book and the blog alone. Uh-huh. Plus, uh, you know, the newsletter is a gateway to everything. It, training announcements, a gateway to the website. You know, we're training across the country. The announcements are in the newsletter. It's short, it's sweet, and it's free. Yeah. Um, it, it's not a lot of work. Some newsletters are a lot of work. Yeah. And the best way to sign up for the newsletter is uh, we got a text to sign up function. Oh, you cool. text to the number. 22828 and the number you're texting to again is 22828. The message you send to that number is FBI empathy, all one word. Don't let the spell check put a space between FBI and empathy. Make sure it's one word. Send FBI empathy, one word to 22828. You get a response back asking for your email address. You signed up. You're off to the races. Awesome. Yeah, you know, a testament to that. I've, you know, I think I read Never Split the Difference probably about 10, 15 years ago. And so with our interview here, I refreshed myself. But one of the biggest things I went to was that blog and just picked up a lot of the nuggets and the tips along the way that really are. If you put that entire blog together, you pretty much have Never Split the Difference. But I, I'm a big micro learner as far as those tips and nuggets and small things that we can do along cool. the way. So I really appreciate what you do, Chris. Thanks, man. 
Cool. Well, this has been awesome. Uh, oh, everybody, hopefully you got as much value out of this as I did. Uh, check out Chris's blog. Check out his uh, workshops that he's doing. Bring them into your company. Uh, I, I know, you know, I do negotiation training too, but this is next level shit here. So uh, bring Chris in, go to some of his public workshops, and hope everybody got some value. Thank you all very much. Have a great week, and go make somebody happy today. If you do nothing else and you make somebody smile, you know you had a good day. Thank you all very much. Make it happen.